Martin Gurry is a former CIA analyst and the author of The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. This is Martin Gurry. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. I'm here with Martin Gurry. Uh, sir, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, please call me Martin, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, look, I, I wanted to talk to you because you have become uh, fairly well known for this book you wrote back in 2014, The Revolt of the Public, which now uh, is commonly referred to as being prophetic and you know, uh, predicting the world that we now live in. Um, but just to give the listeners a little background on you, uh, I keep hearing you, you were a, a former CIA analyst. Can you explain what does that mean? What did you do? Well, I was a, um, an analyst of global media, which was a pretty specialized art form uh, in the organization. So you basically looked at, um, you know, CIA is essentially a secrets worshiping place. And so basically they consider um, whatever has the highest classification to be the most wise and most profound and most interesting uh, intelligence. But in reality, and that was true from the beginning, but of course, since the digital age has become you know, blindingly obvious, most of the information we gather in the world at the speed we need to gather it from is from open media, you know, the open media of the world. And um, there are certain uh, techniques that I won't go into because some people will find it interesting, but most probably not, um, descended from um, propaganda analysis uh, and not unconnected with the, the current obsession with fake news um, that you apply to information from uh, a foreign country and you derive, um, you know, the analysis com- consists in trying to you know, derive changes that uh, in policy that might impact the, um, the United States. Okay, um, great. So I, I just wanted to get a little sense of, of your background in the CIA. Um, in terms of your book, you were mm-hmm. kind enough to provide the reader directly with a thesis statement. Um, and you say, I'm just going to quote it here just to get uh, your reaction to certain parts of it. Uh, my thesis is a simple one. We are caught between an old world, which is decreasingly able to sustain us intellectually and spiritually, maybe even materially, and a new world that has not yet been born. Okay, first off, what is the old world that you're referring to here? It's the world that as you can see from my, my graying hairs um, and, and, and falling hairs, uh, I was born into, okay? It's a world of the 20th century. Uh, it really began probably a little before that, but mostly it reached its peak of the 20th century. It's the world of uh, top-down, I talk, you listen, institutional control. So everybody belonged to institutions. You were either... Um, a powerful elite person who actually managed these institutions, or you were somebody who was told what to do by these institutions, politicians, political parties, the media, and so forth. Um, That is the world that that I was born into, and it depended on a... um, a, uh, the, the, the amount of information being exceedingly narrow, the narrow trickle of information, so that every every institution, a president proclaiming a policy or, or a, uh, 
you know, an academic writing a paper, uh, just by the fact that they were sharing something that was very scarce, mm-hmm. possessed authority. The change has been, of course, the digital tsunami that I talk about, the, the tsunami of information that has swept over the world. Um, we don't need the, uh, the institutions for, the, for, uh, for information anymore. They, they are swamped and they have lost their authority. Every time an authority speaks, and I think COVID has been a tremendous example of this, they're contradicted by a hundred voices. And sometimes the voices are cranks and crazies, but sometimes the voices are right. Yeah. And, the, and the authority is absolutely wrong. And so once you're wrong once and you're pushing us an authority, who's going to listen to you the second time? So that's where we are today. That is that that world is struggling to be born. And we're in the very beginnings of that transformation. Uh, I will probably not live to see the end of it. Um, uh, but we have not, we have exited a world and we have not arrived at what's going to happen next. And uh, in terms of the world we exited, you say the incumbent structure is hierarchy, whereas this new wave is raising uh, the network. Um, right. So let's talk about what that means. When you say the network, I mean, a lot of people are connected online through social media, but they're on platforms like Google, Twitter, Facebook, which are hierarchical, right? D- does that matter? No, I don't think I don't think the platforms are hierarchical. The platforms are these gigantic networks the, the that are. The companies I'm referring to are are these hierarchical. The companies themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, most businesses that that's that's been uh, the the squaring of the circle that hasn't happened. Most businesses are extremely hierarchical organizations um, that is leading increasingly to revolts from below from workforces that feel that their, their, um, their voices need to be heard more, but you know, mostly they are. Yeah, the, 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 the social media platforms are controlled by hierarchical corporations. They are themselves, however, gigantic networks. Now there are these algorithms applied to these networks right. and, the network, and the algorithms distort uh, the flatness of of the of the of the network in certain ways, probably very important ways, but they are networks. And what is what is I think decisive about them from from the way we view the world and people like yourself and and maybe even younger who have been born or very early in life, basically this has become the natural way of being, is that we all kind of look at each other eye to eye. I mean, I could be the president of the United States and I'm tweeting and I put a tweet out there and you can just say, no, Mr. President, you're an idiot and you're wrong. And it shows up right there, eye to eye with the president. There's no, the president's tweet isn't 10 times bigger than yours or gilded with with, uh, colors or or arrows point. No, no, we're all kind of equal there. Uh, And that is very destructive of the hierarchy and the authority uh, that we have inherited from the 20th, 20th century. Uh, I want to talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages of the old order approach and the new order approach. Um, because as you say in your book, these two approaches are going to be in conflict for some time. Um, and maybe we can look at that through the lens of, say, the Arab Spring, where these networks were able to drive a lot of people out onto the streets, but they weren't able to come together and provide a coherent alternative political vision. And it wound up being a hierarchical institution, the Muslim Brotherhood that filled the void. Isn't that uh, an inherent weakness of these networks? Yeah, I mean, 
what is good and what is bad is not something that I deal with except in terms of functionality, right? What the, uh, I mean, I, I have values and my values have to do with liberal democracy, but from the perspective of the people who are using these, um, these networks to try and overthrow um, political systems or political regimes that they hate, um, they, you have two very obvious, I mean, because there have been dozens of these and they show almost identically the same, the same features. Um, they're, number one, it's a powerful weapon for putting a million people on the street almost overnight. I mean, it's amazing how that can be done. You have no idea uh, what that would have taken uh, when I was a young man, right? You needed so many, uh, so much in infrastructure, so you know, a printing press, uh, you needed um, an ideology, you needed programs, you needed people to be bought into all those things. Today, it's just you, you can do us what happened in uh, Israel, for example, where this young woman who felt like her apartment was being uh, priced out of her range, just just put a, a protest in, in a, a, on Facebook and said, let's show up in Rothschild Boulevard. Uh, tomorrow morning and just stay there till you know the, the price of housing changes and you know, there were like tens of thousands of people there ultimately and hundreds of thousands marching up the streets in, in Israel okay so you can put people on the street at a, at a remarkable you know speed uh, and, and that's been demonstrated and number two that sort of organizational power is very shallow never goes beyond the slogans never goes to an ideology never goes to um, a program. Never goes to a if the people on the streets wanting to take over power. That used to be the only reason people uh, radicals went to the street was because they felt like they knew better, and if you only gave them the opportunity to run the show, they would impose all these programs based on certain ideologies. No, but everything is against. There are good structural reasons for that we could go into if you want. But the fact is, it's very shallow. You look at uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, but that's true everywhere. And it's a whole series of very appealing, seemingly going somewhere words. But when you parse them and question them, they break down into a bunch of slogans, very, very shallow slogans. Now, everybody... It, it practically in uh, the cities, for example, they had very, very sympathetic, progressive, liberal, um, democratic mayors in places like Minneapolis and New York. Um, they they applauded these protests and wanted to you know support them, but what was there to do? What did they want to change? What was there to do? I mean, defund the police is just a slogan. What does that even mean? Okay, mm -hmm. so um, there is. There is a lack of seriousness and a lack of heft that comes from being able to mobilize so quickly. You haven't thought things through and you're only against something. Something has triggered your anger and you're against that thing. And you're not, um, you have no positive program. So those are two, two uh, main features of the revolt of the public as it has happened so far. That may change in the future, but so far I have not seen a change. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting what you mentioned about, I mean, in the fact that uh, Minneapolis, for instance, voted to uh, take steps towards defunding the police. And it turns out after the vote that everyone who voted yes on that had a different idea of what that meant. So it, it, and it ultimately wound up going nowhere. And yeah. it, it's um, 
Do you think, to, to what extent are some of these networks being misled? Um, I mean, the, the obvious flare up was, you know, the Russian trolls, but I'm sure that the US government does things like that. I'm sure that other, other governments do things like that. And I'm sure that there are probably companies and political groups that do things like that and manipulate Twitter, et cetera. Um, I mean, it, it, how much of what we see on the streets could be said to be a result of that? I am a skeptic of that sort of thing. And, and then I freely admit that I'm in the minority in this, but my answer always is show me the evidence. Show me the evidence. I have seen no evidence that fake news, for example, changes minds. Mm -hmm. It could compound people's beliefs. And you can see uh, a process whereby a person who considers himself to be a um, you know, Tea Party uh, person can be slowly persuaded by following a bunch of hashtags that include his, his little group uh, to, into being, into thinking that, um, you know, the country's run by a bunch of pedophiles or, or there's a, a child slavery ring in a pizza parlor or some kind of crazy thing like that, right? Um, but these are people who are already predisposed to believe things like that. Nobody's mind has been changed. Um, and, and I always pose the following, you know, uh, way of, 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 of deciding, which is um, never... If, if you yourself would not be persuaded by something, if you, for example, I mean, if you're a Catholic and you read a fake news saying Protestantism is the best thing in the world, would you just change your mind? You know, if, if you are a communist and you suddenly read something, a fake news saying Catholic capitalism is the best thing in the world, would you change your mind? Uh, most people uh, don't change their minds. In fact, the default, the studies I have seen, the default perspective on the human animal is that they hunker down and even sometimes in the face of pretty blatant need for changing what you think they tend not to so the fact that um there's uh, fake news out there and that people and there's no question that there's i mean uh i think it was nn talib that said of this enormous explosion of information the vast majority of it is noise right it's it's stuff at best is just that and at worst is is willful lies um, but what influence does that have? I, I have never seen that it has very much. It yeah. can compound somebody who already believes in, in something into maybe being a little more aggressively that way. That's about all. May, may I suggest, though, that perhaps in this new order, uh, persuasion is, if not irrelevant, at least doesn't matter as much. And attention is the real currency. Where uh, I talked to a guy uh, this fellow, Peter Pomerantsev, who used to work in um, Russian television. And he did a book and he interviewed um, these researchers who were graphing um, the Twitter networks of these activists in Mexico who were responding to these students who had been killed. Right. And it showed uh, on the graph what they suspected, the researchers suspected were trolls who would engage with the activists. And soon enough, the bonds in the graph between the activists themselves grew weaker as they went off to respond to all these trolls. Um, and that that derails the movement. Um, does that seem more likely? I mean, I don't know that particular case, so I can't right. really comment to it. But um, 
attention is a key to persuasion. I mean, I would not separate those two things. If you bore somebody from your first word, you're not going to persuade them to anything, all right? It is remarkable to me, just as a, um, I guess a personal gripe, you might call it, how incredibly boring our politicians are, right? I mean, how does, I mean, Trump fed off of that. Because <laughs> yeah. whatever Trump wasn't, boring, he wasn't, okay? Yeah. Um, and, and, so if you want to persuade, number one, you gotta you 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 gotta entertain. In some sense, you have to catch your audience ear and, and, and keep their attention. And um, you know, there's a theory that has you know some some value to it, and then maybe some not. But this, I think, is true, which is that it, the agenda setting theory that says um, we tend to consider the things that uh, are most talked about to be the most important. And that decision is made separately of value judgments. So for example, if you're Donald Trump in the primaries and everybody's talking about you and like literally zero people are talking about all the other cats and dogs behind you, mm -hmm. um, whether you were for Trump or not, didn't really matter. He became a very important person in people's minds because everybody was talking about him. Um, so persuasion works along those lines. You have to capture people's attention. The more you do that, the more important you seem, the more you have your, your audience in front of you willing to listen to you, you can deliver a message that might, they might understand. People do change their minds, uh, but not, not through fake news, in my opinion. Fair, fair enough. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious then. So what, um, what is your great concern here? We, we talked about your values of liberal democracy. Is that what you feel is, is under threat? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, you know, the whole idea of the book being prophetic, I mean, as you know, if you read the book, as I hope you have, yes. um, <laughs> on the very first page, my wife just pointed out to me, <laughs> on the very first page, it says, I am not a prophet and I don't do prophecy, all right? So, um, but when it came out, many of the topics that it addressed, I felt people weren't paying attention to. Now, of course, since Trump got elected, um, there's a lot more attention focused on that. Uh, but there, you have two contending sides. And I, I, that is the framework that I, I pose that, that kind of breaks out of right and left, and it breaks out of conservative and liberal. You can put those pieces back in, but essentially you have a public that is suddenly empowered by, by these uh, platforms um, that is bent entirely, as I said before, on negation, is totally against and has no alternatives that it is proposing. Now, if you are totally against and you have no positive program at a certain point, it may be that you believe that destruction is a form of progress, just basically tear everything down and we'll work it out from there. Right. That's my definition of nihilism. On the other side, you have these elites that manage the old 20th century um, hierarchies that are still very much with us. Uh, and yet, and they are on the one hand, totally clueless. Every one of these revolts that I, that I write in the book and have written since, um, catches them by surprise. You would think by now they would know that what's coming. No, it's like, who are these people? They don't belong to any party that I know of. They don't belong to any structure that I know. Of. They just suddenly appeared on the streets. So they're very clueless, um, but they're also not willing to, not willing to grasp the change 
that has overtaken them. They don't like that. Being an elite in the 20th century was a very comfortable thing. It was very nice. You just stood up there. Your institution was a platform. You could be an absolute idiot. You could be a total jerk. But if you were at the top of an institution, you were an authority and everybody bowed to you. That's gone. And they don't like that gone. They want to go back to it. And I think the 19, uh, 2020 election was, was an example of that. I mean, you have Joe Biden, who is like, I mean, he makes me look like a young puppy by comparison, you know? I mean, uh, he is 100% the creature of the 20th century. Yeah. And he's up there and he has no clue what to do. I mean, you cannot, you cannot, um, reaction uh, is in its own way uh, a, a token of respect for, for radical change. I mean, you can only have reaction when you are very afraid of radical change. And they're very afraid, but they don't know, they can't, they, there's no time machine to go back to the 20th century. Well, so then you, you talk about the, the people who, the public not having a, a viable um, alternative. They're more just against, but right. in terms of the old order, uh, is it a viable strategy to just resist this change? No, no. I, mean, I think we're, it's like a historical clock has stopped. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's a minute to midnight, the clock has stopped and we're all sitting there waiting for something to happen. On the one hand, you have the public, you know, absolutely in, in the mode of repudiation saying we want everything to change. We don't like anything about this society. We don't like anything about this, this uh, political system. We don't like anything about the politicians we have. We don't like anything about the policies. We don't like anything about our government. On the other hand, you have these elites who are clueless and terrified and um, basically have lost the sense that they stand for something anymore. They pretty much stand for, let's get to the end of my term without being burned alive by the public. You know? <laughs> that is, seems to be the program of almost every politician that you see nowadays. And a lot of them don't make it, by the way. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, I mean, you can see Andrew Cuomo, what happened to him. Right. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm curious, um, as, as a guy from the CIA and speaking of a crisis of authority, um, the whole WikiLeaks uh, scenario, it seems very much in line with the, the subject we're, we're discussing. Um, there was a report that came out, I think it was this week, where they said that, uh, you know, there were ideas about even assassinating Julian Assange uh, floated about and the CIA was somehow involved. Um, what, what is the deal there? I mean, you would think that people there would recognize what you have recognized that this is on some level kind of inevitable with these new networks in play. Um, do they think that they can prevent this information from coming out entirely or what is the strategy? Well, of course, if I told you, I would have to kill you. Yes. And every, <laughs> and every one of your listeners too. So well, that would be kind of a chore. Um, uh, it is to me a source of endless humor, how mm. the CIA is believed to be a, Okay, let me, let me just put it very simply. The CIA of, of Hollywood is yeah. not the CIA that exists. I, I, I won't even go any further than that. Yeah. Uh, it's a bureaucracy. It's a basic bureaucracy. It used to be um, it used to be extremely adept. And it was actually a fairly flat bureaucracy when I, when I joined. 
I last I watched it become fatter and fatter uh, and become more and more like what I have talked about, a very, very steep hierarchy. Um, but and it has very many good people, as all these institutions have very many good people. It's just that structurally, you know, um, in the olden days, you I mean, you have no idea the amounts of paper that got passed back and forth, but it's hard. It's hard to make a copy of that. Okay. Uh, and nowadays, when everything is digital, you have two choices. You create a bubble, a hardened bubble in which nothing penetrates. So you're basically insulated from the world of information and call yourself an intelligence agency, or you create gaps through which information can can uh, can filter through, including the ability to somebody to guess put a a, a stick and, and 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 download data, um, and you open yourself to all kinds of vulnerabilities. So it it is a I would say that WikiLeaks is very much the kind of thing that I, I wrote about. Um, it's, it, I mentioned it not directly, but indirectly, the fact that keeping secrets is, if not impossible, uh, it's very, very difficult compared to the way it used to be. Yeah. And what then, so you're talking about your fear in the book of uh, this, this crisis hitting liberal democracy um, is... Is and is something like WikiLeaks? Is that a, a fear of yours made manifest, or is that sort of a sideshow compared to what you think is the big thing at stake? It's a sideshow. I I always thought um, the incentive in in all the intelligence agencies is to overclassify things because the importance, as I said before, of what you're doing depends in in the institutional mind on the level of classification. The higher it is, mm -hmm. uh, the more important it must be, right? Uh, so a whole lot of the crap that got that got dumped out uh, by WikiLeaks, it was like, yawn. I mean, the people who did it were so idealistic at the time. Well, this is at the end of the United States of America. People are gonna riot in the streets and everybody kind of read it and went, well, like, why was that even classified, most of it, right? right. I mean, there was some, some parts that maybe compromise some people and that I, I really don't I believe you take an oath when you go to these places and I believe in oaths. So, I mean, you break an oath, you're the kind of person that I don't particularly respect, but in terms of the damage done, it, except for those people who were probably exposed and probably suffered um, in terms of information, uh, pretty minimal. Okay. Well, what about, uh, you talked about COVID very early on in this interview, and of course, that's a you know public health crisis, a lot of misinformation uh, bandied about, um, and some real slip-ups on behalf of the authorities. What about uh, what many would consider a much more severe crisis down the road, something like climate change? Is that a major concern of yours? Do you think that would accelerate this crisis? Yeah, the problem with climate change, of course, is that the time windows are so vast that I, I sort of abstain from the conversation because I don't believe the public uh, works on that, that kind of a time frame. I think the public works on, um, you know, how do I meet my bills tomorrow? I have to, you know, I have X amount of salary and my bills are coming in and how do I get there? And when you're telling them, well, we're going to, you know, shut down all these companies and 
we have to basically abandon our industrial way of life and um, and and uh, and this is for something that may happen at some time in the future. Um, I, I, I think there are people who take that very seriously, extremely seriously, some even too seriously perhaps, um, but um, the majority of the public doesn't. Okay, and why has this revolt, when we talk about the public, why has this revolt of the public not hit a country like China? I have very good reasons. Uh, the dictatorship and if you uh, rebel in china you will be harassed and, and possibly put in jail that's a pretty simple proposition now there have been dictatorships that have been overthrown right by the system <laughs> I, I don't think it's a, first of all two things i don't think it's inevitable mm -hmm. that that uh there there are many other dictatorships where this has not happened the tougher the dictatorship let's put it that way the less likely this is to happen china china um has the advantage that uh it it has been growing economically at an enormous rate i mean i i have a I've had a personal experience with several several uh, people from China and I have spoken to them about it. And I can remember one one uh, young man actually, who said uh, he, he hated the regime, uh, it was totally against it. But then he said, listen, my grandfather lived in his hut with his pigs. He says, I am a graduate of Harvard and I'm a millionaire. He says, I'm not gonna rock the boat. You know, basically the change has been so dramatic uh, and the, the, the fear of poverty and the fact that, that they're headed away from that is so visible still that that regime probably has a lot of built-in passive support. Now, if you throw in a serious um, recession, which will happen sooner or later, then we'll see. Then we'll see about revolt of the public. Everything, everything that all the elements of the revolt of the public are, are uh, in place in China. As opposed to a place like um, like North Korea, where they don't really have the, the digital infrastructure, yeah. in China it could happen at any moment. They you need certain uh, changes in the the politics and, and the economics in particular for that to 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 be a possibility. I think. Have you heard of the lying flat movement? The what? It's, no. it's called the the lying flat movement. It's uh, <laughs> it's in response to the uh, the six six nine. Uh, Jack Ma way of working where you, you oh, yeah. it, it's something like from six to nine or whatever, six days a week. And uh, the lying flat movement is just lying flat. In <laughs> bed. And, you know, we're resisting this. It's well, that, that, worrying I, the regime. I, now that I know about it, I think I'll join. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, speaking of something else that happened recently that I read an article uh, you wrote about the, the submarine deal, um, with uh, the U.S. and France felt snubbed, and the U.K. and Australia, um, I, it's a little off topic from what we've been talking about, but maybe not that much off topic. Uh, but I was curious. You, you saying that uh, Boris Johnson is continually underestimated by the EU, and uh, Joe Biden is overestimated. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that was somebody else's article that I retweeted. I think I, I, I have to. Uh, <laughs> oh my good God! Sorry. My yeah, bad. yeah. All right. No, but but I, I actually believe both those things, so I can I'm perfectly willing to talk about it. Yeah, I think Biden came into office being the not Trump, and anybody who 
disliked Trump, but there were a lot of people that didn't put a lot of hope on him. Now, I, I am on record as saying that I didn't vote for either of those clowns, but but honestly, he got elected and you go, yeah. okay, maybe maybe he will he'll, he'll make American politics boring. Forget about making them great. Just make them boring, you know? Um, and so I think a lot of people put expectations on, on Biden that by now, I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, there were way more than he could bear. Uh, and I think the Europeans made that mistake. Um, and I think Boris Johnson is one of the smartest heads of state in the world. Really? Why I mean, because he can, in the middle of a television interview, start citing the Iliad in the original ancient Greek. Okay. This man, he kind of, his persona is his funny hair and kind of like a buffoonish uh, air about him. He is one of the most intelligent and educated people. I think that's how he hides the fact that he's so aristocratic because we're very blue blood uh, background and that's not good for politics. Um, but he is sharp. He is sharp. I, I heard a story about Boris Johnson before he went on stage for some, you know, like reception. He, uh, he was backstage and he ruffled up his hair on purpose, yes. just a little bit yes. more, just yes. to come yes. off a little bit more buffoonish. Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, in, in Britain, uh, not surprisingly, if you come across as very upper crust, you have trouble with electoral politics. And he just gets around that by just looking like this crazy person. But isn't that kind of one of the ways that the old, I mean, he is of the old order in that sense, aristocratic. Um, isn't that kind of one of the ways that like you have celebrities now who are trying to act more and more like normal people and, you know, having like even uh, I talked to a person a while back about branding and he talked about how ISIS is using the same social media tactics as like Taylor Swift, like, uh, oh, it's a lifestyle brand. I mean, it can't. It, it just feels like these networks can be so easily co-opted and the authenticity so easily faked. Yeah, I mean, look, I am a great believer that the, that the human animal doesn't change that much. I think all of that happened before in small, right? I mean, it was basically, there was always somebody in the village that everybody looked up to. And when, when that person put on a funny hat, everybody else put on the same funny hat because that person was wearing it, you know? Yeah. And there was always the person that, that was a serious, maybe the, the minister or whatever, who, you know, when that person said, no, that's a bad thing or a good thing, everybody listened and did just that. And uh, there were always these tiny little networks of, uh, of respect and, and of contempt, uh, of rejection. Uh, that the small world we all really do live in, uh, the Dumber number, that I think it's uh, 150 or 200, the maximum number uh, number of names we, we can uh, stuff in our heads. Yeah. Um, I think that happens now uh, virtually. I'm not sure that it's any more compounded or that, that the effects are any more serious for you know the, the influentials and. Uh, I don't think anybody joined um, ISIS again <laughs> because of uh, some web thing. Uh, you needed to have a predisposition for that. You needed, you know, it, 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 the same thing applies to all these revolts. The ostensible causes are never or almost never the, re the real causes. If you have, if you have, uh, you know, a gigantic 
um, spill of gasoline that just lies there for days and days and days, sooner or later, a spark will light it, all right? And the spark will not be the cause of the fire. It's the fact that that gasoline got spilled and there it was all that time. Yeah. And I think uh, if you are feeling disgruntled with Western society and you feel like you want to strike back at it, and suddenly you have the possibility of becoming a Muslim or, or joining ISIS or whatever, um, or going to the streets and protesting Hosni Mubarak, um, you do it. But the cause is not any immediate uh, um, event. It's more like there's this predisposition to do it. Mm. Are you uh, of a Steven Pinker type who would who says that you know the world is actually getting better and better materially in terms of the level of violence, et cetera, uh, but that the reason there's so much unrest is because of things like social media and uh, you know negative filtering in the in the news? First part yes, second part no. I mean there is no question, young man. I mean yeah. I, I I mean the difference in affluence between when I was a young person, I mean, my family, when I was in high school, lived in what I was considered to be a totally normal house. That house, when we moved in there, had one bathroom. I think the average for 1960s, so a little bit earlier than that, uh, it was one bathroom, one car. Um, it was, a, I mean, the square footage of it, I could probably put in, in my, my basement in my house that I live in right now. And we have expanded from that uh, life expectancy has grown. Um, medical science takes care of a lot of illnesses that killed off people at every age. Um, uh, literacy has grown around the world. You just look at that. It, it, it's indisputable, I think. And this is just speculation now, because how can you prove this? Uh, but I think that has a lot to do with the disgruntlement that we feel. I think once our basic needs are taken care of, you start to feel like there's this, you know, hierarchy of values, you know, self-expression becomes more important. And let's face it, most of us has very little that ourselves can express. I mean, what can I express as myself, right? I mean, so if I wanted to be the world to be some, some kind of uh, theater of self-expression for me, I'd be very angry most of the time because people are trying to express themselves, not listen to me express myself, right? right? I, think, I think the fact that when you look at places like, like Israel is a good example, to have existential threats. And you look at how they respond to, um, to challenges. Uh, it's very different than the rest of us who don't have those existential threats. They are still in their hierarchy of values in survival mode. At any moment, things can happen that may kill you. Uh, we here in the United States and in most of the West, most of the free democratic countries lead very happy, secure lives. And, and I think when you do that, you want more. And when you want more, you're not gonna get it. And you, if you, particularly in the world we live in today, where uh, you know, uh, family and religious ties are much weaker, and people think that a community is a site on the web, um, you tend to put all your eggs into politics and to somehow want that self-expression theater to be political and to derive meaning of life from some kind of political expression. That is just never going to happen. Yeah. People get angrier and angrier because they're basically trying to do something that cannot be done. Yes. And it also feels like, uh, I'm sure you've experienced this with in, in your life when people get angry, a lot of the times it just feels like, um, 
they feel as though they're not being heard. And I can imagine a lot of people on Twitter who are, you know, ranting and raving, they're, they really aren't being heard by the authorities that they're railing against. Isn't that part of the sort of the frustration of the public where you do have these networks where you can express yourself, but it feels as though it doesn't have any effect? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a structural reason for the anger. When you have that tsunami of information, we are swamped in information. When everybody's talking, it's the Tower of Babel. Um, you have to, number one, scream, uh, or you will not be heard. And number two, you were talking about attention. If you want to attract attention, uh, you can generate an angry screaming with somebody else, some opponent who screams back at you. And then you have a side and they have a side and suddenly people are paying attention to you. So it's a structural reason for this, okay? On a much more, I think, just basic and honest level, um, I think it's true that the elites are happy to talk to one another and to um, um, just exchange ideas that they find to be interesting and profound and whatnot and are not paying any attention whatsoever to the public. That's why I say whenever the public erupts with a great big issue, Black Lives Matter, the Tea Party, uh, you can name it. What happened in Chile, for example, um, they are surprised. They go, what a minute, I wasn't talking about that. And who are these people? Why are they talking about this? Um, so I think there is an honest and basic truth to the fact that um, the elites don't want to hear the public. I, I won't name names, but I was talking to politicians, very smart people, young people, and they kept asking me, you know, what? How can we communicate? What what, what words do we use? I said, have you, have you tried listening? You know, listen. <laughs> you know, if the the great thing about the world today, but you know, if you're a researcher, if you're a politician, is the people that you're dealing with are in this medium that you and I are talking through, right? They're they're in the digital universe. Um, it's all out there. It's all out there. So if you want to find out the words that they are using, um, listen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you these politicians that you're you're talking to, are they coming to you for advice? God, yes. I mean, that's a new thing, and it hasn't happened a lot. So don't don't uh, don't um, create an image that this is line of <laughs> you know. You know presidential aspirants coming to my doorstep and saying, what should, what should I do? But yeah. I mean, I have always said that my book has had a very patchy reception. And so I'm, I'm kind of like a hero uh, in places like, like France because of the yellow vests and in Silicon Valley. But I'm a zero in Washington, D.C., which is where I spent most of my career because <laughs> the people here just don't get it. But lately, there have been one or two people who have been kind of nibbling at the edges and, and uh, talking to me. Is it shocking to you, though, that they don't get it? I mean, I've heard people say, you know, sort of like a established elite order people say like, oh, well, aren't all the real problems just on Twitter? And um, it, it feels like there's a massive disconnect. I mean, how, how, how can these people, these networks are freely available to all. How can yes. these people not be uh, like aware? You know, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I wish I could give you an answer. I, I, I am not a revolutionary, as I've said that many times. I was born in Cuba. I don't believe in revolutions, all right? Uh, they, don't, they don't work out real well. But I, after much thinking and honestly, much hesitation, 
have come to the conclusion that our current elite class needs to go, it just needs to go. I mean, these people are, are not up to the challenge that this, this, this um, informational sea change has presented for our democracy. Uh, the, I, I don't understand why. Uh, I think we are in part to blame. We members of the public are in part to blame. I think they always uh, promise what is obviously not going to happen. So I think we demand that they do that. I think if somebody ran uh, on, a, on a platform of, look, we don't really know how to get from point A to point B, but here are the steps I intend to take. And if they don't work, we'll try something else. You know my objective, but the means of getting there may change. Because why? Because we don't really understand enough, right? Um, I think if anybody said that, they wouldn't win a single vote. I probably wouldn't even vote for them, you know? Right. <laughs> so actually not true. So if somebody said that, they would have my votes forever. But um, so I think in part it's us. I think that the uh, the syndrome with, with the 20th century obsessed elites is that they always speak with authority, even when it's massively obvious that they're wrong or, or when it's potentially possible that they might be wrong. So instead of hedging, instead of acting like true scientists, which is to say, well, this is the principles we're going on. As we get more information, we'll correct our course. They say, you know, this is what we know. This is what we, so it's all very, uh, very uh, top down and very much as if we were still in the 20th century where the rest of us, A, won't be able to tell the difference when they're wrong. Well, that happens immediately. And B, can't start roaring and yelling back. Immediately, we find that they're wrong. So yes, I think, I think we need elites that are of a different quality of humanity, just basically that, but also learn to use a different rhetoric, a different rhetoric for democracy than the one we have been used to for the last 100, 130, 40 years. What do you mean a different rhetoric? Well, the rhetoric is one of uh, of promising. I promise. I promise utopia. I promise. I I will. Uh, I have the plan that's going to generate jobs. It's going to end unemployment. I have the plan that's going to create economic equality. None of those things. We don't know enough. Uh, there's a, there's a, a book by a brilliant British economist called "Why Most Things Failed." Uh, Paul Ormerod explains with a great deal of data, we don't know enough. We just, the human race, our, our level of, uh, of uh, knowledge about complex systems like the economy uh, is way less than that we pretend to be, right? So, um, so these elites are constantly promising things that they are not going to be able to deliver. In the 20th century, that was also true to a large extent, but because the informational system was this tight little group, uh, you, could, you had two ways that that worked out then. Either it got swept under, under the rug and nobody talked about it and it was presented as some sort of, you were judged on your intentions, he, he strove to do great and maybe he didn't quite get there. Or if it was too egregious a failure, you became a scapegoat and you and not the system were responsible for this failure. You, you failed the system, right? Mm. Today, um, everybody's failing the system because uh, the system has changed drastically. I mean, the information system has changed drastically. So we can't, we have to talk, I think, more modestly and more carefully and therefore more honestly about what we can promise. Uh, we can say we intend to go in a certain direction, 
but we can, when we say we'll get there and I have the plan, um, that's going to be falsified almost immediately. Well, I, I can't imagine there'll be a day soon when politicians come out and say, look, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but um, it would be, be great. It, it would You'd be, be great. surprised. You'd, You'd be surprised. So. I mean, in the olden days, uh, modesty in claims was uh, supposed to be a virtue. Yeah. And, and I mean, it would it it reached the point of kind of like a, a little drama where even you were supposed to not be ambitious enough to want to become president, for example, and you had to be right. persuaded against your will to, to actually run for president. Um, and you really didn't promise change and you didn't promise, uh, you were just the person who was going to execute the laws of the United States of America as, as enacted by the other branch that seems to have disappeared in the last 20 years or so, uh, the, the, the legislative branch. And those kinds of promises, um, I mean, they are a factor of the 20th century. Uh, they began with the 20th century where there was this idea that if you applied enough power and enough science and enough money to what was considered to be a social or political problem, which is a, to me a silly word, um, you could solve it just like a mathematical equation. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I. I would look forward to the day that that happens. I wonder, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I hope it does. Is there anything, um, before we go here, is, mm -hmm. is there anything that um, you, you feel like people should know uh, a, a, about this book that we haven't discussed yet? There hmm. doesn't have to be. Um, I don't know about the book. Um, they, they should buy it, number one. Yes. That's that would be that would make me happy, <laughs> um, but about the framework of the ideas and the and the book, which made me write it, uh, I, I think everybody needs to understand how to deal with information better than we do now. I think people talk about information like it was um, stuff, you know. It, it's it's like I. I know something about something and so get the information about something. But listen, information has a structure and that structure creates the stage and the props and the setting of our political and economic dramas. All right. So understanding the structure of information and how to deal with the different structures of information. We've gone from one into another, all right? And, and the whole system is toppling down for that reason. Um, is something that I would encourage people to, to, to do and, and that I, I hope in my, in my own way, I, I'm trying to, that's my own little um, crusade is to get people to not look at information as stuff and that's why fake news, for example, is just content. Information is not just content. Information is structure. And the structure determines the drama. You don't go to uh, a Marx Brothers type you know, uh, movie and expect Hamlet from it. I mean, it, it's not going to happen. I mean, that's sort of what the elites want to happen. It's like, you know, we're now, right now, in a Marx Brothers 
comedy. It's crazy. Everybody's, you know, everybody's yelling around. Everybody's, you know, the women are all being harassed and all kinds of weird things are happening that, that should not be happening. Right. Um, and, 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 and the damn elites want Hamlet because that's serious and important, you know, and it doesn't matter. The structure is, is, is uh, Marx Brothers. You can make Groucho say to be or not to be, and it's going to be funny. It's not going to be serious. All right. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I would encourage people to, to look on information structurally and consequently, um, when you look at, at, uh, at things like, like fake news, understand what the place of these of these strange strange content pieces are in in this overall structure why is it possible to have fake news who i mean my friend andre mir who by the way i recommend his book too it's called post journalism brilliant it explains everything i'm talking about way better than i do um it basically says Fake news are more informative than real news. And the most informative part of fake news is the fake part. If you're a propaganda analyst, you know exactly what he's talking about. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it means there's always somebody who's trying to convey some message for some purpose to some audience. And if you look at every, every bit of information that way, um, then you learn that there are people who are trying to peddle these ideas uh, and that they think that this is their audience. And you can, you can for example, try to get a, a reading of, well, are they actually reaching the audience that they think they are? Are there effects? Information has effects, but the, the effects tend to be structural and not necessarily content driven. So, um, so when somebody comes up with a nice, reasonable, normal, um, column, say an article in a newspaper or online that is totally accurate. Well, that's nice. But what does that tell you? It tells you somebody wrote something that's kind of accurate. When somebody goes out of their way to tell a lie, what's going on? That's a far more interesting question. And that mm -hmm. sheds more information than the person who's just you know, being straight. Interesting. Um, well, Martin, we're almost at an hour here. So yeah. let's wrap up. But uh, where can people find you? Uh, they can find your book on Amazon, wherever books are sold. Uh, right. Do you have a, a Twitter or website that you want people to know about? I have, uh, I have Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I, I have a, a blog that is mostly dormant, uh, but it, I do post it occasionally uh, called The Fifth Wave. Uh, and I mostly publish in um, the Mercatus uh, monthly magazine of uh, discourse that's my my main other but sometimes in other places city journal also great uh well martin it was a pleasure speaking to you today it was fun all righty take care thanks okay thank you to martin gurry and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan yammy see you next time